All right, well, let's get after it. Good morning. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, let's go to John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one uh, under your seat or the seat in front of you. You are more than welcome to use uh, to follow along with us. We'll be in John chapter 20. Um, excited to see you guys here today. Dress in your Easter best. Looking sharp. We'll get to John 20. We'll get started here this morning. Growing up, uh, I was a optimistic, um, optimistic guy. Uh, so by that I mean, I was very quick. I would give people the benefit of the doubt. If someone said something that maybe could be negative or an insult, um, I mean, I just gave people the benefit of the doubt. And and I, I guess I lived kind of a sheltered life. And so um, life to me and people and everything was just kind of good. I mean, there wasn't much darkness around. And, and so I was just optimistic, kind of half glass half full, um, if you will. Um, but that all changed. The summer after my uh, graduation from high school, and it changed because I got a job working in retail. <laughs> and so I don't know if you've worked in retail, um, but it has this ability to really introduce you to kind of the, the darker side of humanity um, and, and really the world around us. Uh, I graduated from high school and got a job at a, a Christian bookstore. And so Christian is going to be the key word in this whole story. Um, the Christian bookstore, and, and within a few months, I, I was good at it, I'm a bookworm. Uh, so I was promoted to assistant manager. Now, with that job came the responsibility of dealing with what I'll censor for you, the problem customers. Um, we had our own names for them. Um, but the, the people who would get upset and get very angry and cause a big scene. Uh, and so what would happen is, is one of my employees would be down there dealing with it, and they'd call me, and I'd come and try to, like, even it out. Um, and so, really, it was during that time, that, at that time of the Christian bookstore, that I was introduced to really the darkness um, of people and really just the world around us. And so I remember one day, it was Saturday afternoon. Saturday was our most busy day. And we had this specialty item, like a, a porcelain angel type thing in our gift section. And man, people were wanting that. They were flocking from everywhere. And we only had a little bit. We were running out and we had run out. And this lady came in. She was African-American. Um, it was a largely African-American area where the store was. And she came in and wanted the item. I, I think she had driven like an hour or so. So, I mean, she was... She was set on getting this, and we were out. And so I was at the, the counter, and I was like, sorry, man, we're out. Um, now, there were three of them sitting behind me on the counter. Uh, so we don't have shopping carts. So when someone wants to hold an item, they just come put it on the back of the counter, and it's just like it's in their shopping cart. Uh, so there were three, but they had already been taken. They were the last three in the store. Well, she goes, well, who are, who, whose are those? What are, what are they doing sitting there? Now, what I should have done was nothing, right? What I did do was point at the customer who was holding them. Yeah, I'm in the future too. I can I know the problem with that as well. So she, <laughs> this is real time. This is happening. She walks over to the customer, and I'm just going. That is a disaster. This is about to blow up. And she's actually very kind to the customer. She asks if she can have one. The customer says no. The customer was a Caucasian lady, um, and she comes back. You'll see why that's important in a minute. She comes back and is upset. Uh, but doesn't give me, I mean, you get some brutal beatdowns. She gives me like a 30-minute run, or a 30-second run, and then leaves. And, and I'm like, okay, it's over. And we got, I mean, I would get chewed out four or five times a day. So it's, I mean, you just forget about it, it's over. Well, I get a call from corporate uh, about an hour and a half later, the corporate store um, up in Nashville. And they go, hey, we wanted to hear your story, your side of the story about what happened with the woman looking for the angels. I'm like, oh, okay. And, and so I tell them my story. And, Thinking I'm in the I'm in the clear. I mean, this is my story. This is what happened. Um, and he goes, okay, okay. Well, I think everything is fine. We just wanted wanted to hear from you because of what she had done. I'm like, oh, I'm missing out on part of the story. What she what she do? Well, apparently this lady had gone home and maybe just got more riled up and more riled up about it. And she called CBS, the news station, 
and the Black Panthers and wanted to organize like a rally outside the bookstore. And so corporate's advice was, if anybody shows up, don't give a comment. <laughs> so I spent the rest of the day waiting on news cameras in the Black Panthers show. They did it, um, but, but it, it, was a port, it was a 599 angel. And so uh, there's another time, there's an older gentleman who came in and he wanted to buy a, a Bible commentary set. So a, a group of books going through the scriptures with commentary. Um, and he uh, was upset with another one of my employees because he had a 20% discount but it was already on sale 30%, and you can't combine those discounts. Uh, so I was called up to explain that to him. Um, in that process, I learned his 20% discount was actually his pastor's discount. Um, so the keyword in this story is pastor. Uh, at some level, some group of people had chosen him to be like the shining light of Christ's likeness and peace and love and all those things. And he, I mean, tears me up and down. Expletives, very colorful phrases, um, and... In his logic, his words were, it makes no sense that a man of God would have to pay the same amount as someone, anybody walking off the street. I was like, well, that's airtight, but I don't think that's going to fly here. <laughs> and so he, he realizes I'm not going to back down and I'm not going to give him the, the discount. And he sticks his fingers in my face and he goes, you're a filthy money grabber. So I just back away. <laughs> you realize I'm not getting any of the profit straight from this. Um, and so... I'm realizing as I work there that human beings, given the right circumstances, I mean, everybody can be a little nasty. And so it's not just me noticing in other people because it's, it's in me too. I mean, I feel it in my own heart, in my own soul, in my own life. I mean, you, you, if you get close enough to me, you're going to see things and you're going to be like, oh, Mike, calm down. Like, what is, if, if you catch me in the right mood with the right things happening, I mean, we all have this kind of tension inside of us. Even when we know what's right, I mean, we... We tend to fall, and, and given the right circumstances, we can be very nasty people. Um, but I, I also was introduced to kind of pictures of, of human suffering that I, I maybe had never seen before. And, and one in particular is etched in my memory. Um, it was closing. We had like five minutes to we were locking up the store. And a, a lady came in, an older lady, 45 or 50, blonde hair. And you could tell she was disheveled. I mean, she was not. Um, it looked like she hadn't put on makeup or done her hair. And you could tell she'd been crying or whatnot. And, and we come to find out she was the only one in the store that she had come to look for a pin, like a pin that you would put on your shirt, some kind of angel or something, uh, because her older son, an adult, uh, had died that night. Uh, and she had given him this pin years ago and, and so wanted to find it. And I guess in grief, you kind of maybe sometimes zero in on something. And so that was like her mission that night. Um, and now we just have big boxes of different pins. And we had, no one in the store had ever seen the pin she was describing. She bought it at a different store years ago. Um, but, I mean, you're not going to kick her out. And so she literally for an hour and a half, maybe two hours, is sprawled out on her floor. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And she's sobbing and crying, and, and she'll look at us for, like, help, and we're like, we don't – I've never felt more helpless in my life. One, I, I didn't know what to say to her. Two, I couldn't find the pin. Like, there's no way I was going to be able to find it with her. Um, and she's just sitting there. And I don't know if you've seen the look on, on someone's face, but there's a, a very particular look on someone's face when you know that they're feeling much more than what physical pain has to offer. I mean, there's nothing left inside. Like you just don't know if you're going to get through this. I'm feeling so helpless. And it was about that time. I didn't work long at the bookstore. I uh, quit after about a year. But it was about that time that I, I really started diving into the question of, one, why would God let this happen in the world? So here's, no matter who you are or, or what your background is, you can't deny that something's gone horribly wrong. Both in the world around you and inside of you. I mean, you can't deny it. Turn on the news for 30 seconds. Go to a bookstore. Every book is self-help. Because every single person in the world says something's gone wrong. How are we going to fix it? 
And so, God, how could you let this happen? What do you think about this? Like what, what is your emotion? What's your reaction to all of this? And then what are you going to do about it, if, if anything? And, and as I was diving into the scriptures, what I found is that the scriptures don't necessarily give us an equation or formula, but what they do give us is a series of stories about who God is, what he's done, and what he's doing in the world. It's often true that a story is, is one of the deeper ways to communicate a truth. Um, and so if we go back to um, the very beginning of the Christian story, um, which I think will help us get into this resurrection story in John, uh, you find that uh, God, his creation was very good. It was full of deep, rich, beautiful life. So in Genesis 1, the very beginning of our scriptures, God creates everything that exists, heavens and the earth. And he says it's good. And so this is creation without pain and death and suffering, oppression, abuse, cancer, disease. It's a deep, rich, beautiful life. And now I want to point out some things about the story you may be familiar with if you grew up in Sunday school. But in Genesis 1, the story takes place in the beginning of time, the famous beginning of the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, I'm pointing these features out to you because they're going to play a big part in our reading of John this morning. And I think they'll help us understand what is taking place in Jesus' resurrection. So remember these. It takes place in the beginning of time. The second one is it happens over the course of seven days. So there's this, this very rhythmic, definitive pattern to the creation story in Genesis 1. There's a day, day and night, day and night, day and night, day and night, over seven days. And sometimes we get lost and sidetracked in kind of a scientific question um, were these actual 24-hour days? Were these longer days? But, but all that is missing the point, in a sense. It's, it's all missing the point of what's really being communicated in this story. And, and for now, notice the feature. You've got seven days of action by God. And then the work ends on the sixth day. On the sixth day, God creates man and woman, mankind, the image bearers. And he's done. And on the seventh day, he rests. He ceases working. Not because he's tired, but as a way of saying, I'm completed. I, I've done what I wanted to do with creation. My work is now done. He rests. He steps back and rests. Now, all throughout this Genesis 1 story, you're going to see this word good. The Hebrew word is tov. And you see it over and over and over and over again. God will create something and he'll step back and look at it and go, tov. That's good. And he does it and he does it and he does it. And then when he gets to day six, as he's done creating everything... His description of creation changes. Catch it. It goes from tov to tov meod. Very good. He finishes creation. God, the creator, steps back and says, very good. A good God makes a good creation. But the scriptures, while they say the world wasn't always like how it is, how we experience it today, um, they do also give us another story for why um, the world ended up the way that it is, how we experience it. And so that's found in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, the first human beings, they fall. They disobey God. And with that, that fall, that disobedience, pain, death, and evil were brought into God's good creation. Again, often this is a story where people get sidetracked. Um, I mean, in, in a sense, we, we wonder, how big of a deal is it that they ate from some tree? Like, that's the story. God told them, don't eat from this tree. They ate from the tree. Um, but what it's communicating at a deep, deep level is that human beings, um, the image bearers of God over creation, decided to walk away from God. Now, follow me here. What happens when you walk away, when you leave a good God? What do you find? Bad. You don't find good. 
The choice to walk away, to disobey, to rebel is a step down the path that will lead you straight to the opposite of everything that God is and provides. Which is why death enters into the scene. So God creates and he gives life. Death is the opposite. It's the crumbling, the destruction of that life that God creates. In the scriptures, death is the ultimate evil that's conquered by the cross and the resurrection. So with the fall, what happens is the world starts spiraling out of control. You see it in Genesis. So right after the fall, the first murder happens. There's war, there's oppression, there's all kinds of stuff. It starts spiraling out of control. Humankind disobeys, they rebel, they leave. And it creates this world that we live in now. Which, again, no matter who you are, what background you're from, anything, you are one phone call away from experiencing the depth of Genesis 3. You're one doctor's visit away. You're one car ride away from feeling the complete depth of everything that went wrong when we walked away from God. God's good creation has been invaded. Evil has come in. Pain, suffering, death. The good news of the scriptures, though, is that God doesn't sit back and go, well, get what you want. He doesn't sit back and go, I'm just going to destroy it all. He doesn't turn his back, but instead he comes to creation and from the beginning says, I will fix this. I'm a good God, and because I'm good, I will get my creation back to good. I will fix this and undo what you have done. And I led to all these different promises. I want to read one for you from Isaiah 65. You don't have to flip there. You can if you want to, but I'll read it from Isaiah 65. Um, This is a promise about what God would do to rescue his creation. For behold, this is God talking. I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So what's he saying here? He says, it's heaven, everything I've created, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to recreate it. I'm going to have a new creation, new heaven, new earth. And the former things, the things of the fall, the, the look on that woman's face as she's crying, you won't remember it. They're gone from my new creation. God, he comes to his people and promises to create something new and an act of rescue. Where we get the word salvation, we're saved from what we brought into the world. But be glad and rejoice forever. God's still talking. And that which I will create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Again, if you've been in a room after a death, there's a, there's a very distinctive sound to someone grieving a death. God's going, that sound, that pitch is not even in my new creation. You don't hear it. It doesn't exist there. The former things, they're gone. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. No more ICUs in the hospital. No more premature babies not making it. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. It's a way for them saying, a long time. We're going to live a long time. The sinner, a hundred years old, shall be a curse. They, my people, shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. Now listen, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. God comes to his people and says, I am going to do a work of new creation. I will make a new heavens and a new earth, and it will be my great act of rescue and salvation where I undo and get rid of all that the fall, all that our sin has brought into the world. It will be a time where you don't know pain and weeping and distress, where there's no oppression, where even animals get along and live side by side. Now, this is going to take us, I believe, nicely up to John. So John 20, you should already be there. We're going to read the resurrection story in John. Um, now, I will say this uh, as we get started here. In John, um, if you've come to the church, uh, you know not to expect kind of an equation or a formula or, or something like that. Um, I think when you get to stories like the cross or the resurrection, um, you're really hurting everybody if you do try to sterilize it or boil it down into an equation. What you get with a story like the resurrection is something that comes to us with multi-layers. <laughs> with all these different meanings, with all these different avenues to explore and to live in. But what I want us to do in John is to flesh out maybe what's at the heart of what's happening with Jesus' resurrection, or at least what John thinks about it. Because John's going to write in a way that's going to echo the story of creation and the story of new creation. So let's read in John 20. John 20, we'll pick it up in verse 1. This is why we're here today. Now on the first day of the week... Um, so if I ask you in a bit, when did this happen? You could say it was the first day of the week, Sunday. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, so we've got two characters now involved. Um, Mary goes to the tomb. There's no one there. She comes back and gets Peter and John. John, the author of this gospel, calls himself the one that Jesus loves. Um, which I just always wonder, is that how he's introducing himself back then? I mean, is that on his business card? Um, <laughs> Peter is, is kind of the, if you know the story, Peter's the macho man. Peter's the, oh, I'll do it. I'll, I'll be with you. I'll fight everyone. I'll be the first to say this. I'll be the first to step out in faith. Um, and so you're going to see some real interesting stuff here. There's lots of things that, that point to us that these stories in the Gospels are true, that they're actual eyewitness testimonies. One is because if you read John, it's not what Matthew says. There are little, there are little changes here and there, which to some go, oh, no, it can't be true. But if you talk to a lawyer or a judge, they're going to say an eyewitness testimony that's the exact same is not true. It's not. What you want are little discrepancies that don't really impact the story, but the main story being the same. So a court looks at this and says, this is already pointing out to be true. Here's how else we're, we're going to see it's true. One, Mary goes to the tomb. This is not a good thing for the Jesus story. A woman's testimony in this time is not even considered valid. But who comes to the tomb? It's Mary. From, from early on, no matter what Christians get portrayed as, um, early church is... is Lifting up women into a role higher than society around them. But, but here's my favorite part of the story, other than Jesus resurrecting. Um, it's the display, the interchange between Peter and John, and then how he writes the story. So look at this. Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Verse 4. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So did you catch what happened here? John goes, me and Peter started running. I beat him. <laughs> and Peter, I'm sure, every time this text is read, he's like, no, 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 no. I slipped and my shoe came off. There's a, uh, I was praying. 
And John's like, I got there first. It gets better. Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, finally, showed up, following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now catch this in verse 8. This is overkill. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, we get it, John, (laughs) beat Peter, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said that, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. I love this, because this is the point where she recognizes him. I mean, can you imagine, and we've never seen Jesus one day, when he comes back or when we're called to him, he says, Mike, Linda, Michelle, we recognize. That's our Lord. Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, that he has said these things to her. Now listen to verse 19 here. On the evening of that day, we already know, what day is it? It says it again, the first day of the week. I think that's important. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Okay, um, now this story of Jesus' resurrection is not in some kind of vacuum. It's not a random story. It's the end point of John's whole story, his whole story of Jesus' life. And he's told the story in such a way that it seems much like a retelling of the Genesis story, the Genesis creation story that we, we talked about here in Genesis 1. So oftentimes... The way that somebody writes something, like the structure, the repetition, the references, that is just as important as what they actually say. Like that gives a lot of meaning and weight to what they're saying. That adds a lot of depth to it. And as you go through John's gospel, he's very intentional at point after point after point to match up Jesus' story to the creation story. And I think with his retelling of the resurrection, his eyewitness accounts, He's giving us a glimpse into what he thinks is happening as Jesus walks out of the tomb. So if you remember, John begins in, in chapter 1, verse 1, with, In the beginning was the Word. Now anyone who's grown up in Sunday school goes, I know that phrase. That's from Genesis. John begins by quoting Genesis. But now instead of God as the actor, it's Jesus, the one they call the Word. And immediately, as John's gospel begins, the two stories are linked. The Jesus story and the creation story. In the beginning. Now, also, as you read through the Gospels, actually, look uh, in chapter 20, verse 30. It's right there. You should have to flip. Um, John's going to give us the purpose for his book, why he wrote it, what he, he hopes to accomplish. Now, Jesus did many other signs, that's important, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but they are written, these are written, so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, John doesn't use the word miracles. He talks about things that Jesus does with this word signs. 
And he says, what, what's happening is Jesus has performed these signs and they're pointers towards something deep and true about what God is doing and, and who Jesus is. Um, and so the signs were given. He says, I, I picked these signs. There's others, but I didn't, I didn't include them. I picked these signs so that you would know who Jesus is, so you'd believe and have life in him. Now, as you walk through the Gospel of John, we find that there are seven very distinct signs that Jesus performs. Um, now, the first is he turns water into wine in chapter 2 um, at the wedding, uh, which is really a scandalous story. I mean, if you think about it. Um, now, I know wine means grape juice. Um, which is why the Bible says don't get drunk on wine. No, it probably had alcohol in it. Um, and Jesus, again, I've never been at such a part of such a party, but I have wicked friends who have told me that, that sometimes what happens when the alcohol dies down is the party starts to end. Well, this is what's happening at the wedding, and Jesus says what? More wine. The party ain't over. This is his first miracle, the first sign in the book of John. Chapter 2, it's this, this pointer toward Jesus creating and Jesus bringing joy and life. And there's this party, there's this celebration happening. And Jesus is at the center with a creative work. This is his first sign in the Gospel of John. As you keep reading through John, there's six more. Um, he heals the official son in chapter 4. He heals a paralyzed man in chapter 5. He multiplies bread to feed 5,000 in chapter 6. He heals a man born blind in chapter 9. And he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Uh, and then the seventh sign is found in chapter 19 uh, when he is crucified. And John lays out these seven signs for us as pointers to who Jesus is and what God is doing through him. Now, does the number seven resonate with you at all? Does it sound like a creation element? Seven distinct periods of action. Seven distinct days. Jesus, in his story, has seven signs Working Now there's more. On the sixth day, which would be Friday, Jesus says what? On the cross, he cries out, it is finished. Much similar to when God creates man on the sixth day and says, I'm done. John is telling us a story. And if we pay attention to how he's telling it to us, we might see some insight into what he believes about it. What's actually happening. There's more. On the seventh day, Saturday, Jesus says what? He's dead. He rests in his grave. He does nothing. He retires from his work. He's done. Much like the creation story, where God on the seventh day stops. He ceases acting. Now there's even more here. These are just a few that I'm pointing out to you. Um, time and time again, the Gospel of John is going to parallel um, the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. If you want, email me. I'll throw back three or four more your way, where word for word, John parallels in structure and sequence the book of Genesis. So what's happening here is John is retelling the creation story, but now Jesus is the main character, and he has finished the old week of creation. And we get to John 20, and what happens on the first day? Sunday. A new week. Well, the story climaxes with Jesus' physical resurrection. He was fully dead, and now he's fully alive. The word resurrection, it doesn't mean that he was weak and that now he's come to. It doesn't mean that he has gone to be with God. It doesn't mean um, that he has had some kind of spiritual presence to them. It means none of those things. There was an empty tomb, and the disciples used the word that meant his body was dead, and now it's alive again. He had come back from the dead. And his body was transformed, in a sense. He could walk through walls, as we saw at the end of John 20. But he could also be touched and he could eat. He had a physical body. He was 
dead. Now he's alive. God reversed what had happened to him. He made him new. So the story of trans um, climaxes with Jesus' physical resurrection. Um, and it seems, we saw this takes place on the first day. This whole story here in John 20, you might want to underline it. It's bracketed by that phrase on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. John's going, hey, this is important. Don't miss out. This is the first day of the week. Jesus has finished the creation week. And now something new is happening. There's a new week starting. There's a new age beginning. And it happens as Jesus emerges from the tomb. The resurrection, this leads me to believe, that the resurrection was the beginning of a new work of God. It was the beginning of a new work at God. God was in Jesus, now acting again in a creative way. But there was a difference here. It's not like the old creation. On Easter morning, God begins his great act of salvation, of rescuing what has been lost and what has been um, broken, what has been dark. He rescues it. He brings it back. In a sense, he takes Isaiah 65, I will make a new heavens and a new earth. And on Easter morning, he says, I've begun. I've started. There is new creation happening with my son walking out of the tomb. Now catch this. Follow me. Please follow me here. Jesus is killed with the full weight of sin and death and evil. All the things that the fall brought in. And what does God do? The scriptures say over and over again, God raised Jesus. Jesus didn't raise himself. You can't find that anywhere in the scriptures. Every reference is God raised Jesus. God takes someone, his son, the representative of all his people. He takes him who has been defeated by sin and death and evil and he makes him new again. He raises him to life. He reverses the sins and raises him to a permanent, eternal life where he will never die again. Where he's in a glorified body. On Easter morning, God begins a work of new creation with his son. He takes what's been defeated and he makes it new. When Jesus walks out of the tomb on Easter morning... What's happening is God's future is walking into our present. God's future is walking into our present. So the, the Jewish people who believed and expected for this new creation, um, they thought that it would be a clean break. That you had this old age full of all the stuff that we deal with, and then it would stop and you'd have the new age, new creation. But what happened, and, and it's a surprise even Paul himself, what happened is that that's not, there was no clean break. Instead, in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of this evil age with sin and death reigning, God's new age started. New creation burst forth into the darkness, into the hurting, into the brokenness. And the world has not and never will be the same. The great moment that all of creation has been longing for begun on Easter morning with Jesus and it continues to this day across the world in the hearts of men and women and children from all different places with all different belief systems and ideas and backgrounds. New creation working itself out as God redeems and restores everything. So here's what... Let's, let's work out some implications of the resurrection. Here's what, it, what I don't think it means, primarily. Um, I don't think the resurrection of Jesus means that there's life after death. It, I mean, it's true. That's a true statement. If that was on a true or false, you put true. But 
people believed in life after death before Jesus. I mean, you don't, what is, you don't need the resurrection to prove that. I mean, it guarantees that in a sense. It gives you another example of that. But, but the people believed in life after death, at least some of them, a good portion of them. The resurrection doesn't primarily prove that. Um, the resurrection doesn't also primarily prove that you can have a relationship with Jesus because he's alive. That's not in the Gospels. If anything, that's the point of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside believers. People had relationships with God well before Jesus, before the resurrection. What does the resurrection mean? What does it do? Well, I think looking at John, at this masterful telling of this story, this huge creation story that climaxes in a new week as Jesus walks from the tomb, it gives us a ton of implications, too, I'll, I'll point out and we'll flesh out here today. The first that there's hope for the future. There's hope for the future. The world's not headed to hell on a handbasket. You are not headed to darkness and destruction. But there's hope. There's a future for his people. Just as you and I, we live in this dark, broken world where we feel the weight of our own sin and darkness and pain around us. The new creation, Jesus' resurrection, it comes into the darkness and points us to the future. So the scriptures would say, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus' resurrection was a prototype. This is the word he uses. A blueprint. The first fruit of ours. That what happened to Jesus will happen to his people. So we, we talked about this on Good Friday. Um, it's a mistake to think that eternal life is some disembodied state where you leave your body behind and you float around in heaven or in space um, with just consuming a soul. That's not the hope in the scriptures. The hope is that just like Jesus raised from the dead, you would come back to life and reign on a new heavens and a new earth for all of eternity. Um, follow me on this. If that's the plan. So God, can we agree? God created our physical bodies. The church tries to, to separate us from that. That's not in the scriptures. Flesh, physical body is not bad. The word you see flesh and Paul um, in some translations that might mislead you is really talking about sin, sinful nature. It's not talking about physicality. But if God creates the body and he says it's good. In fact, he says tov meod, very good. But then his ultimate plan is to get rid of the body and suck our souls away. Is that not death winning? Has not death won at that point? Or would the defeat of death be, you cannot have what I created. I will remake it and it will live with me forever. Resurrected. New bodies. Glorified bodies. Living forever on the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. The scriptures say when we look at Jesus walking out of the tomb, we're looking at a blueprint for what will happen to us, those who in faith follow him, obey and worship. Not only individually, but Globally, cosmically. So Romans 8 would say that all of creation, every single bit of it right now, is groaning like it's giving birth. And it's waiting for new life. For the sons of God to be resurrected, revealed, so that it can be released from the weight that we put on it. Revelation 21, verses 1-5. through It's a picture of the future where God says, Behold, I've made everything new. There's no more weeping. There's no more pain. I'm making new heavens, a new earth. Former things, they won't be remembered. I am making all things new. The resurrection comes into our darkness and brokenness and says there's hope. There's a future for you. 
those who would believe and trust. There's also the meaning that there's life available to us in the present. It's interesting that if you read the Gospels, none of them end um, with an idea that now you can have a relationship with Jesus, or now there's an afterlife, or now um, even there's hope in the future. They all end in a very earthy, very now aspect. I mean, they end, and the point seems to be, therefore the world's different. Therefore you have a new life and a new task, a new job. And the disciples get on with it. The resurrection, it comes into our lives in our brokenness. To Mike Skinner, who in his heart finds darkness and weakness that he doesn't want there, but it's there. The resurrection comes in and says, have new life. To communities, to towns who are riddled with oppression and abuse and violence, the resurrection comes in and says, there's a new world available to you. There's life available in the present. And you and I, in 2011, Sugarland, Texas, on Easter morning, have this invitation open to us to walk into this, to experience what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, that those in Christ are a new creation. We find our hearts transformed, our minds renewed. And because of the new life we're given, there are endless possibilities. There are no limits on the opportunities for life here and now. Relationships restored. Justice pursued. Love, forgiveness, walking as brothers, pursuing God, knowing Him, being close to Him. There's life available now. This is why. So this is why we feed homeless people on once a, one, one Tuesday a month, not because we we want to feed homeless people. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. But we do it because at the core of who we are, we believe that something happened that has changed the world, and our job is to live in that and to advance it. There's a different world out there. And for those with eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to feel, you can experience it. You can walk into his new creation. You can be transformed yourself. You can participate in it. John would say that the hallmarks of this life lived in a new creation as a new creature are belief, faith, a trusting that he is who he says he is, this happened as it says it happened. It means what he says it means. There's belief, there's worship. There's lifting him up, forgetting about ourselves, saying we want you to be glorified. We want you to be honored and worshiped. Our lives are for you now. There's community. Most of the churches. So I, I think one of the best ways I've ever put was, in a real sense, Jesus writes the symphony with his resurrection. And you and I are learning how to play the notes. And that's what we're doing with each other, the people around us. What does life look like in this new creation? What's an appropriate reaction? What's an appropriate relationship here? What should I work for and spend my money on? How should I think and talk? There's hope for the future. There's life in the present, in the darkness that we feel inside of ourselves, and the pain and the hurt that's around us. The resurrection comes in, in the middle, and says, I'm making all things new. I'm making all things new, and I've started. Aaron Dottie Roy, we'll close with this, has a quote that says, Not only is another word possible, she is on her way. I think maybe if we Christianize this a little bit, not only is another word possible, but she's begun. She's, she started. And, and Roy says this, 
On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. Not only is another world possible, she's on her way, and on a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. So here's my hope this morning. My hope is that this wouldn't be a strange story that was recorded by odd people who may have been confused, and that this wouldn't be a just an example of a miracle, but that, that we would see the resurrection, we would see our lives, we would see our hope, we would see our joy, our possibilities, we would experience it. That maybe on a quiet, because here's what, we distract ourselves. We distract ourselves with the pain and the hurt and, and with good things that just distract ourselves. And so we don't see new creation. We don't experience it. We don't pursue it. We don't notice it. But maybe on a quiet Easter morning, as we're worshiping as a church family, as we're reading the scriptures, maybe we'll feel the heartbeat that a world started on Easter morning that's being worked out to today. You and I are invited into it. And then get to enjoy it as it spreads and expands to one day we're standing there as God says, as in Revelation, I have made all things new. Never again will you hear the sound of weeping and tears. Never again will you be in the hospital room with a cancer patient. Never again will you mourn over a child. Never again will you turn on the news to hear about child abuse and war. It's gone. It's new. And my people have been raised up. Death has been defeated. And we reign forever with Christ. God is our God. He is our Father. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. Um, may this be the quiet day. May today we, we start to develop and cultivate hearts that can feel the rhythm of the new creation. Souls that will respond to it. That we would follow and worship and enjoy all that he's accomplished for us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time this morning. I'm reminded as you read the scriptures and attempt to discuss what all you've done and who you are that um, there's no one worthy, not myself to, to speak on it, not us to, to even hear the message. God, I pray that as in all things, your, your grace shines through and, and you open up our hearts. You, you transform our lives. I pray that you would do what only you can do through the Spirit. We need you. I mean, that's our confession this morning. We need you. We need you to come and to transform and to make new. We need you to open up our eyes to the resurrection. We need you more than we know. We love you. We thank you. Let's hear something that we pray. Amen. participate in